spiritual warfare tonight. You ready? All right. Let's stand together. And I'm trying to uh, pull a quote about spiritual warfare from different people every week. And this is one that I found that I liked a lot. I don't know who Captain Reginald Wallace is, but I sure like the quote. The triumphant Christian does not fight for victory. He celebrates a victory already won. Very important to understand. Now, let's read again together Ephesians 6.12 about our spiritual battle. Are you ready? Let's read. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spirit, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Father, we thank you that you have given us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, every person in this room and everyone listening by radio are in a battle. We were in a battle today. We'll be in a battle tomorrow. Father, we pray for wisdom that you would open our understanding so that we can know how to fight this fight and win and live in victory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, perk up and listen, you're going to win. You know, I tell you, the Word of the Lord, I love the Word of God. I just love the Word of God. It is so powerful, and I, I, um, I'm really getting so much personally out of this study to prepare for tonight. Last time, if you'll remember, we saw that we were at war with four different aspects of the same power. That is, I shared with you that when he says rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, principalities, powers, he's not telling us four different kinds of like demon spirits or hierarchy. He's telling us, giving us four different aspects of the same enemy. He's sharing four different, the enemy from four different angles. He's talking about the same enemy in every one of these descriptions. And remember, principalities and powers is talking about the fact that spirits govern or rule over a particular region. Demon spirits are territorial. They have a turf. And you can have different spirits over different cities, different towns. And we talked about that last time. And if you missed it, I would really encourage you to get the tape. Now, that's two of them, principalities and powers. The third one is rulers of the darkness of this world. But literally in the Greek language, it means world tyrants. And we share that this word contains the idea of exerting strength as well as utter hardness and is portraying the worst kind of tyrant. It's telling us about the nature of our enemy, that our enemy is tyrannical. He is dictatorial. Look at the worst dictator in history, and everybody thinks of Hitler. But I'll tell you what, Mussolini killed more. Pick any dictator in history and look at their tyranny, the tyranny they exercised, how they were tyrannical in their nature, uh, oppressive, um, taking liberty away, this kind of thing, tyrants. And he's telling us that's what these spirits are like. If you've ever seen somebody in the grip of an evil spirit, 
This is what they have done to them. Look at the, think of the Gadarene demoniac in the Bible. Cutting himself, a clear sign of demonic uh, activity when somebody is being self-destructive. That's a clear sign of demonic activity. Uh, cutting himself, living among the graveyards. No, power, no man could hold him down. No chains could keep him. You look at that poor man and you go, he was tyrannized. And that's exactly what the devil is like. Our God is the total opposite. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. And take my yoke and put it on yourself and follow me. You will discover that I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These rulers, these world tyrants, are the opposite. They're heavy and they take your freedom away. Now, Spiritual wickedness in high places is the fourth one, which is not just talking about a general condition of wickedness, like it's, boy, it's just spiritually wicked out there. But he's identifying actual spiritual beings with which we war. He is telling us that they are entities. They are personalities. And I'm not, uh, you know, I, you say these kind of things and you say, Pastor, you're kind of creeping me out. Let me, let me tell you. It's not creepy. It's just the way that it really is. It's not a creepy thing. It's reality. Because thank God we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank God that He came to destroy the works of the Does this one work? Try it now. There we go. Okay. It's the devil. <laughs> I'm not a bit surprised. I'm not a bit surprised. I was kind of wondering when something was going to happen. All right. So here we have these four levels or, or four angles to the same enemy. This is what our enemy is like. Now, the Bible teaches Are we good now? not surprised. <laughs> All right, let's move on. The Bible teaches that our world is in the grip of the evil one, Satan. But while Satan is yet active in our world, he's also, read it with me, a defeated foe. Give God praise for that. Now, the writer of Hebrews informs us that through his death, Jesus destroyed the power of the devil, who has the power of death. And this is really important. When we do battle with the enemy of our soul, 
we need to remember we're in a skirmish, but the war has been won. We are fighting on the side of the conquering general. And so keep that in mind. John tells us the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Paul reveals in Colossians that, quote, God disarmed. I love this one. He disarmed the principalities and powers that were ranged against us and made a bold display and public example of them in triumphing over them in him and in the cross. The Message Bible put it in such a way I had to put it here, and I want you to read it with me, okay? Think of it. All sins are forgiven. The slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Oh, I like that. That's powerful. Now, while Satan has been officially defeated at the cross, having lost the ultimate war, he does not concede that fact and still engages in aggressive warfare against God and God's people. Why God has allowed him to continue to roam about the world is God's business. I don't know. But I know the enemy fell through pride, and pride rules his wicked heart and character to this day. And he does not concede the defeat he suffered at the cross. And fights, there's one verse that says he's come to the earth in great wrath, knowing that his time is short. So though he's lost the war, he engages in battles. Though he lost the ultimate war, he lost, that verse said, his power. And his power was death, hell, and the grave. That was his power. He lost that power at the cross. He lost it at the cross. The blood took it away from him. But he still fights battles, though he's lost the war. He's angry at God. He has not given up his fight against God. And the reason he attacks God's people is because God loves his people and the blood of his son is on us. So we got brought into, hey, we got drafted when we got saved. We got drafted. And you can say, I'm not drafted if you want to, but you drafted. You're in the battle whether or not you choose to admit it. Now, in light of this truth, we're commanded to arm ourselves with the spiritual weaponry given us by God. And this is what Satan most fears you knowing about. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me. Satan hopes that you remain in the realm of the natural. And that realm is that you blame flesh and blood for everything you go through. He wants you to remain in the realm of the natural where you fight your spiritual battles with fleshly weaponry. And that means you don't win. That means you lose. You're saved. You're going to heaven. 
But you'll lose battle after battle until you understand that he gave us spiritual weaponry and it is the only thing that will defeat the devil. The only thing. So we've got to understand that A, we are under attack. B, God gave us weaponry that we've got to pick up that we're about to look at in just a moment. C, if we don't pick it up, we're going to lose. Guaranteed, we're going to lose. D, if we do pick it up, we will maintain our victory, glorify God in this life, perform His will on this planet, and go to heaven someday. Now read this one with me. This is great. 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons of flesh and blood, but they are mighty before God for the overthrow and destruction of strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's whatever holds you strong. That's a stronghold. A stronghold is what holds you strongly, and it's not of God. And I'm not talking about demon possession. I'm saying that Christians come into strongholds because they don't exercise, they don't use their spiritual weaponry. So we experience strongholds. We experience addictions. We experience oppression. We experience failures. We experience things in our lives that, that are not God's highest will for us over and over again because we don't understand the weaponry that God has given to us. So the weapons of our warfare are mighty before God. And what did Paul say in Romans 13, 12? The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on what? The armor of light. Now notice, he's letting us know that when we got saved, this armor of light didn't just get on us. We got to put it on. He's telling us, put it on. And if you don't put it on, it ain't on. I wish that it all came in one package. When I got saved, I got it all. Don't ever put anything on. But I've got to exercise the Word of God in my life, and I've got to put on this armor of light. And if I don't, it's not on. Now, let's go on. And the greatest word on this armor of light is found in Ephesians 6. 11 through 17. Let's read this. Put on God's whole armor, the armor of a heavy-armed soldier, which God supplies, that you may be able successfully to stand up against all. How many? All. The strategies and the deceits of the devil. Now, I want to linger on this long, but I want to point out the word strategies. The King James Version and a couple others will use the word wiles. It comes from the Greek word that means schemes. And I want you to notice that this implies an enemy who thinks and plots and plans and schemes ahead of time, an enemy who is strategic and will plot and scheme. I've said it before. God will work, or or the enemy will work 20 years to bring a man or a woman of God down. It's a scheme. We don't have a shotgun shooting devil out there shooting at random hoping he hits something. It is, he's a schemer, a plotter, a chess player. That's our our enemy and I want to expose him. 
In order to be protected from the carefully plotted schemes and lies of Satan, Paul says again that we are to put on all of God's armor. Read the rest with me, would you? Evil days will come, but you will be able to stand up to anything. And after you have done everything you can, you will still be standing. Hallelujah. The evil day Paul has in mind is that critical and decisive day, sometimes only once, other times repeatedly, that comes for each one of us in which Satan pounces upon us with all his forces. It's the day of attack. It is the day that his schemes and his plots have reached fruition and he releases the plan. And it's a day of attack. It is an hour when you come under attack. Peter warned, keep awake. Watch at all times. The devil is working against you. He is walking around like a hungry lion with his mouth open. He is looking for someone to eat. The Message Bible says, eat alive. So what is is Peter telling us? That Satan is predatory. He's predatory. His attacks may come in the form of a diabolical temptation, custom designed just for you, one that uniquely plays upon your deepest weaknesses and frailties. Remember, this enemy we have remembers how he had us before, so therefore knows the weaknesses, the inroads he had into our lives before we were saved. And so he'll try to knock on the same old door. I said, he will try to knock on the same old door. I wonder if they'll open it this time. It's been a while since I knocked on this one. Let's see. He may hurl a fiery arrow of fear or doubt or launch an assault on your marriage or your finances. It can be any one of a hundred different things, but it's always deadly, always fierce, always strategic, and with the intent of taking you down and ruining your faith and testimony. How many of you know that's true? All right. But thank God, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So let's talk about how to keep the victory over over the devil. Satanic attacks must be met with spiritual weaponry. Positive thinking won't win the battle. I'm not in this, I'm not in this, I'm not in this. That won't do it. It's not here, it's not here, it's not here. Nor will trying to ignore it. Talk it away or resist it away with human willpower. It won't work on a spiritual attack. Paul names six pieces of armor. First, we are told, say it with me, put on your belt. The verse says, so stand up and do not be moved. Wear a belt of truth around your body. Now, before I go into these, we're going to go over each one real briefly. Before I go into these, I want you to notice something about the armor. The armor is not a uh, a ritualistic thing that you do like you go I put on the helmet of salvation the breastplate of righteousness the belt of truth the gospel sandals I take the sword of the spirit it doesn't do anything when you go through these devotion and motion things the armor 
that we're about to look at has to do with your way of life. The armor has to do with how you walk in the Word every day. It has nothing to do with a spiritual incantation. It has to do with how you walk. Okay? So what in the world is the belt of truth? The sword and the scabbard, the scabbard being the holster for the sword, were attached to the belt. The belt was buckled on when, everybody? First. Paul is talking here about the personal, moral righteousness of the Christian. He's talking about practicing fidelity to the truth. He's not just saying, well, you know, I'm saved so I can live any way that I want to because I'm under the blood. That's greasy grace and sloppy agape, and that's not what he's talking about. This first word for truth, out of the original language, the way it is in this verse, he's talking about the personal walk of the Christian. We are to practice fidelity to the truth that we know. Walk your talk. This is the first piece of armor. You put on that belt. If you're not walking your talk, what good does it do you to put on any of the rest of the armor? What good does it do? It's meaningless because you're not walking it. Look what Paul wrote to Timothy. Keep a strong hold on your faith in Christ. May your heart or conscience always say you are right. Some people have not listened to what their hearts or consciences say. They have done what they knew was wrong, and because of this, what happened, everyone? Their faith in Christ was wrecked. So there is a direct correlation between walking your talk, living according to the truth. And I'm not talking about perfect. I'm talking about if you mess up, you repent quickly, and you get right back in there, and you walk with God. But I'm talking about walking daily in the truth that you know. Walking daily in fidelity to the Word of God. Something happens. If you lose that, your whole life is open to attack. God has no obligation to protect you if you're living a dual life. He just doesn't have any obligation. Why should he? All that you're going to hear from God, if you start living a dual life, is he's going to come and whoop you. Whoop your spiritual bottom. He's going to come looking for you. Uh, this is just the way it is, folks. This is, this is Christianity. This is what it is. You can't just say, oh, I'm saved and go live any way that you want to. You've got to live in, in fidelity to the truth as much as you know how. And if you fail, Lord, forgive me, and you get right back up and keep going. But you walk in the truth. That's the belt. And that holds on all the rest of the armor. And who helps you to walk that life? Who helps you to live that life? If we, by the Spirit, put to death the sinful deeds of the body, how? By the Holy Ghost, we will live. Okay? Amen. It's quiet in here, and I kind of thought it might be on that one. Second 
Put on your breastplate. Can you say it with me? Put on your breastplate. Wear a best breastplate, it says in verse 14. Wear a breastplate over your chest, which means being right with God. Now, we know the importance of the breastplate. It protected the vital organs, particularly the heart. A wound in the arm or leg would not be fatal, but a wound to the heart is deadly. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence, because out of the heart flows all the issues of life. The heart and the affections of the heart have got to be guarded. Are you aware of that? Because have you ever noticed that your, your heart will stray and wander in all kinds of different directions if you don't keep it under the Lordship of Christ. So every day, this is a piece of armor you put on. You put the breastplate over your heart. And in the original language, this verse says we are to put on the righteousness. Not just righteousness generally, but he's talking about a particular, a particular righteousness. And It's not just any righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that we put on by faith. See, we've got our own personal walk, our own personal fidelity to the truth, but we've also got the righteousness that was imputed to you and me by the blood of Jesus Christ, where God justified us and declared us righteous, okay? So, in this verse... First, the belt of truth is our own personal walk, but the breastplate of righteousness is, I'm standing in the righteousness of Christ. So let's read this verse. Ready? Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no adjudging guilty of wrong for those who are in Christ Jesus. We as Christians are to reply to condemnation with the truth that Jesus' blood has washed away our sins. And when do you need this? You need this because our enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And I'm going to tell you tonight, he'll lay a heavy on you. He'll beat you over the head with condemnation. Take away your sense of worth and value. He'll bring up all your old sins and beat you over the head with them. He'll remind you of your mistakes and failures. And you can't do anything about that past because it's past. But the the devil, the hurler of accusation, will hurl guilt and condemnation into your mind. This is his, this is his, his, the best thing he's got in his bag of tricks is condemnation. He'll tell you, you don't need to go to church. You're not worth it. You need to quit praying. God's not hearing you. Why bother getting the word? He's not with you anymore. Who are you to go to church and worship with all those people who are far better off than you are? He'll beat you up. I can't tell you how many people are out of church every week because the devil has successfully condemned them into a hole in the ground. And that's when you've got to put on that breastplate and say, I stand not in my own righteousness, but I stand in the righteousness Jesus Christ bought for me. I put on that breastplate. I'm guarding my heart from guilt and condemnation. I don't receive this anymore. Amen. Amen. So put on your belt and put on your breastplate. Then 30 says, what everybody? Put on your sandals. Not just any sandals, but the sandals of the gospel that brings the peace Jesus gives to us. 
Having made peace with God through the blood of the cross, we are ready and even eager for the battle with Satan. Here's the gist of this third piece of armor, the gospel sandals. Having made peace with God, my personal walk is where it ought to be. The righteousness of the blood of Jesus covers my life. Because of those two things, I have peace with God. When you have peace with God, church, you can take the world on. I mean, that's why people smoke the dope, shoot the dope, snort the dope, drink the liquor, buzz themselves out. Why? Because they don't have peace with God. There is a civil war going on inside. Their conscience is whipping them to death. But when I've got peace with God and I can look up and my heavenly Father smiles down on me, I have peace ruling in my heart. I know that I've been made right with God by the blood and my walk. I've repented. I've gotten right. My personal walk is where it ought to be. Then that makes me ready to take on any attack that comes against me. That's the gospel sandals. The peace with God makes us ever ready to fight. So say with me, I got to have peace. Yeah, you got to have the peace of God. I mean, don't give any sin more than a 24-hour shelf life. I mean, get your account made right with God quickly. If you sin, quickly repent because you've got to maintain that peace. I'm at peace with God. You know, if you know you've done something that grieved Him and your heart's troubled, settle it. Take it to the one who will forgive you and get that peace back. As long as you've got peace you can win. Amen. Now, the peace of God in our heart shows itself in the readiness of the feet. Our peace with God, Paul says, makes us ready and able for the battle with Satan. Peace, read this with me, would you? Peace with God is absolutely necessary to victory over the foe of our souls. Now, let's go. Notice how the first three pieces of armor interlock and flow together. As we walk in personal fidelity with the word of truth, mixed with the righteousness Christ Jesus gives us through his blood, the result is that we have peace with God and peace within ourselves. Now he goes to the next ones. We're almost done. Fourth, say it with me, pick up your shield. Pick up your shield. Literally, in addition to everything you've already done, take up the faith, which is your shield against the fiery missiles of the enemy. Pick up the shield. Now, in the original, Paul doesn't just say pick up, pick up the shield of faith. He says pick up the shield of the faith. Again, he's talking about a particular faith. The faith that is in Jesus Christ. When he says the faith, he's talking about faith that is focused on something. Faith without a focus without an object is not Bible faith. Amen? What am I going to have faith for if I don't have anything to look to? If I have no object on which to place my faith, what good is faith? I can't just randomly have faith and hope something comes along. Bible faith has a focus. And the focus of Bible faith is Jesus and the promises. In war, in battle, our focus is to be on Jesus 
and his promises. What does it say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In battle, we're to take up the faith we possess in Jesus Christ and in the promises of God, focusing on and clinging to them. You know, when we're in battle, it's really, really important. As a matter of fact, focus will usually decide how the battle goes. Focus will decide it. If you're focused on, as Peter, the waves and the storm and the deep ocean, you sink. If you're focused on the enemy and what he's trying to do against you, if you're focused on the problems and the vexations, you're probably not going to get very good victory over it. The Bible says when you pick up the shield of faith, you are looking up at him and you're focused on the promises. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I'm focused on the promises. If God be for us, who can be against us? No weapon formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you will condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, says the Lord. There is promise, there is promise after promise after promise that he says, pick up the shield. And the shield of faith means you've turned your focus to him and his promises. Amen. 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 We are to pick up this shield, Paul goes on to say, in order to extinguish all the blazing missiles of the wicked one fired against us. Now, why do you think he has called what the devil sends against us missiles, arrows, or darts? Because that's what he calls them. The flaming missiles sent against you. The Greek word Paul chose here was used in in his day to describe arrows tipped with burning cotton and pitch. Not poisoned arrows, as some have thought. They're on fire. What does that mean, they're on fire? What's he talking about? He is describing an open fight on the battlefield of your mind. The enemy hurls a thought. That's where most warfare happens, in between your ears, in the gray matter. He hurls a thought. Remember, it is strategic. It is with knowledge of you. And it may have been planned way beforehand. And he hurls it into your mind. It is designed, or it is set on, it is set on unearthly fire. It has been set on fire by hell. It carries hell's flame, hell's sulfur. And it is designed to set your entire life on hellish fire if it is accepted, if it finds its mark. That's what it's intended to do. Now I want you to listen real carefully to me. I'm kind of to the crux of the matter here. Because this is where warfare really takes place. Please understand, a lot of the thoughts that come into your mind don't originate with you. And I'm not talking about being schizophrenic and weird or or mental issues, none of that. You can be, have you ever noticed, you can be cooking down the highway and everything's fine and suddenly this thought hits you. Say, where in the world did that come from? That's not like me. That is not me. Uh, 
Um, it's, it, can be, it can be very subtle. It can be very strong. It can be disguised as something innocent. But it's a thought. And it's got a hellish flame attached to it. it the enemy wants it to strike the mark, catch flame in your mind, and set your whole life into destruction and hellacious flame and fire. That's what he wants to do. And it begins with a thought. Just a thought. Now, I pointed out here that um, the thought always contains a lie. It may have 90% truth and 10% lie. As a matter of fact, that's the most effective kind. What the enemy hit Jesus with had 90% truth and 10% lie in the wilderness. He quoted verses absolutely accurately, but they were misapplied. It was truth in the wrong context. But this is where the enemy strikes. Jesus said of Satan, the devil has nothing to do with the truth. There's no truth in him. It is expected of the devil to lie, for he is a liar and the father and the spawner of all lies. For instance, Satan lied to Eve in the garden. What did he say to her? Did God really say? And there you are. You're sitting there minding your own business, and a thought hits you. Did God really say never use a drug? Did God really say? You notice how you just filled in the blank? God really say that? Aren't you being a little fanatical? Aren't you kind of going overboard? Aren't you being too churchy? Why don't you just loosen up and live a little? You deserve a break today. <laughs> How do you know God really said that? This is why any church that stands up and says, we don't know if this is the Word of God or not, those people are dead in the water. Because how can you quote a verse at the devil if you don't even know if it's true? This is the Word of God, and this is our sword. So here it comes, and that's what he says to you. Now, here's what Eve should have done. She should have said, most certainly God did say, but she didn't. That's the tack Jesus took in the wilderness. He held up not just his faith, but the Word, the pertinent Scripture passage. Martin Luther wrote, one little word overthrows the devil. You've got to hit him with the word. You can't just say to the devil, I have faith. Flee from me. That doesn't bother the devil. Oh, you got faith? We'll see. No, you've got to counter his attacks with Scripture. The Bible says, so be subject to God, resist the devil, stand firm against him, and he will flee from you. You've got to hit him with the Word. He doesn't care if you say, I've got faith. I'm a man of faith. I'm a woman of faith. He doesn't care. But you give him a verse between the eyes, one word, where you say, that's not true. Here's the truth. He's gone. Fifth, say it with me. Put on your helmet. Paul calls it the helmet of salvation. The helmet is the piece of armor that protects the soldier from a fatal blow. What Paul is saying here is that one of the major means of protection from satanic attack is a life that is growing in grace, 
a life that is lived within the reality of having been saved. That's what it means. It means not just, devil, I'm saved. I think I've been to church. I went to the altar. I do believe. I reckon. I hope. No. The heaven of salvation means you are growing in grace. You are living a life that is true to what has happened to you. Work out your own salvation, Paul said. Cultivate, carry out to the goal, and fully complete your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling, with serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, timidly shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. That shows somebody who gets up every day and says, I'm a saved child of God, and that's what I am first and foremost, and I'm going to grow today in grace. That's the helmet of salvation. That's the helmet. Finally, say it with me. Pick up your sword. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is the only offensive weapon in the entire armament. The phrase the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Word of God. That phrase, Word of God, means literally God's utterances. The sword of the Spirit is what God has uttered. What does it say about the Bible? All Scripture is given by inspiration. Theonoustos, breathed out of the nostrils of God. God exhaled into His prophets they wrote down the Word of God, carried by the Holy Spirit, Theonoustos. So every word in here is the utterance of God. Okay? All right, we're almost done. Look here. The demon forces of hell flee from God's uttered Word. When the uttered Word of God is quoted to the enemy, it becomes a sword that slashes and jabs, repels, and wounds him. Instead of the devil giving you hell, why not give him heaven? When the uttered word of God is quoted, it slashes, jabs, repels, wounds the devil. Because our enemy is comprised of dark spirit forces. We must have a weapon that is able to crush them. And the sword is it. This sword, pick up your sword, everybody. Pick up your sword. I hope you came to church with a sword. This, this book is your sword. With this sword, you slash and wound and repel the devil. With this. Jesus said, thy word is truth. Okay? We fight him the way Jesus did. All right, let's quote the pieces of armor out loud. Let's stand and do it, can we? <clears throat> Ready? Put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the sandals of peace. Pick up the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Pick up the spirit sword. Every day. When we do these things, the forces of hell that attack us will be defeated and will flee from us. How many of you are glad for the armor of God? Amen. Are you glad for the armor of God? Amen. This is what? 
Satan doesn't want you to know. Father, I just thank you for your word tonight. Lord, we're all under attack. The enemy is looking for a way to get at everybody in this room. Every marriage, every single, every mind. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us spiritual weaponry by which we can win and stand. And we pray, oh God, and I pray, help us, Lord, to apply what we have heard, to walk in fidelity to the truth, and to fight with the weaponry that is spiritual. Thank you, Lord, for a victorious church. In humility, I ask you, Lord, arm us so that we can impact this city and see multitudes saved from the clutches of the devil. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise, can you? Amen.